Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shobhana Xavier, and I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. In our episode today, we are joined by Professor Ariella Marcus-Sells to discuss her new book, Sorcerer Science, Contesting Knowledge and Practice in West African Sufi Texts, which is published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2022. The book examines two Sufi Muslim theologians, known as Quintus scholars, who rose to prominence in the West Sahara Desert in the late 18th century. Siddi al-Muqtar al-Kunti and his son and successor Siddi Muhammad al-Kunti both influenced the development of Sufi Muslim thought in West Africa. Through textual analysis of devotional aids, such as prayers or supplicatory prayers with du'as, we are provided a picture of their understanding of the realm of the unseen and the resulting practices of the sciences of the unseen. Marcus Sells captures how Quinta scholars engaged with contested Sufi and Islamic praxis that contained cosmology, metaphysics, magic, sorcery, and occultism. The study also insightfully contextualizes the broader social and political context of the Saharan desert, such as the transatlantic slavery, but um, and how within this context, these um, legacies of devotional and magical practices within Hellenistic and um, Arabo-Islamic worlds are sustained. The book also provides a methodological intervention in the study of religion and how scholars construct boundaries around emic and etic categories, um, particularly when it comes to magic, especially in Islamic studies and broadly in religious studies. This remarkable book will be of interest to those who think and write about Africana religious studies, Islamic occultism, magic, Sufism, and Islam, and much more. In our conversation today, we talked a little bit about the methodological process that led to the writing of the book, some of the ways in which Emic and Etta categories of magic used in religious studies and in Islamic studies have hindered how we think about uh, magic pejoratively, um, and some of the practices such as sound writing uh, and sorcery, divination, um, and much more. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ariella Marcus-Sells about her new book, Sorcery or Science, Contesting Knowledge and Practice in West African Sufi Text. Hi, thank you so much for coming on to New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book, Sorcery or Science, Contesting Knowledge and Practice in West African Sufi Text. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, this book is just such an amazing book and it's so fun. And I I know it's weird to call it juicy, but it's like a juicy book. And so I'm like really excited to talk to you about it. I mean that in the best of terms, right? Like just a good book. I'm so glad that you liked it. It's always a pleasure to hear that. Yeah. Um, Can you let us know a little bit about yourself, your intellectual journey and what led you to writing this uh, fantastic book? 
Um, of course. So I, uh, this, the research for this book started when I was at Stanford. So during my PhD research and even before I went to do the archival research, I had been, you know, I'd been reading a lot about um, West African history, the history of Muslim societies and communities in West Africa. And I kept noticing um, these names, the names of Sidi al-Muqtar al-Kunti and the Kunta scholars would crop up in secondary literature on the history of the region, but almost always as like a footnote or an aside that was about another scholar. And people would say, oh, and so-and-so was influenced or so-and-so was connected to, you know, the great Sidi al-Muqtar al-Kunti. Um, but then they wouldn't really talk very much about those people. But it seemed that uh, Sidi al-Muqtar and uh, his family had somehow influenced almost every single major Islamic figure in the region for like a 200 year period. And then I went to do some preliminary research in Mali in 2010. And I went to the manuscript libraries, particularly in Timbuktu, just to get a sense of like what was in them, what I would find. And I found, um, I found that they were full of what in the um, catalogs were called um, occult sciences or esoterica. And, uh, and these texts were fascinating. They were filled with figures and diagrams and instructions, but most of them, the great majority of them were undated. They had no provenance attached to them. They didn't have authors, they didn't have copyists, they didn't have dates, which meant that they were very difficult to contextualize. You couldn't attach them to a particular time period, a particular place, a particular context, except there were ones that did have names attached to them. And those names were these names, the names of the Kunta scholars that I had seen cropping up um, in relation to all these other historical figures in the region. Wow. And so I was able to put the two together and say, oh, these people, which um, you know, Western academic scholars have not written very much about, but acknowledge are very important, were also important in, in these traditions, were involved in these traditions in some ways. Mm. That's so fascinating. Thank you. I also noticed as I was, as I was working on this topic, I got, um, I had, I had that kind of increasing frustration with both the people who were doing the kind of social and political history of, um, of Muslim communities and figures in West Africa, who, to my mind, really ignored the intellectual production of these figures, right? Um, their intellectual works. And some of them, um, you know, particularly some of the scholarship from, um, from like the, 80, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, sometimes seem to kind of comb through these hagiographic works um, or these treatises in search of dates and to discard the kind of cosmology and the hagiography and the metaphysics as irrelevant mm -hmm. to the history of the region. And then on the other side, people who were doing kind of the intellectual history of Sufism, they often didn't seem to be particularly interested in the social context of the figures they were studying um, at all um, and found that to be rather irrelevant um, or, a, or a very secondary or tertiary relevance to these kind of like abstract intellectual constructs. 
And I think one of the questions for me that motivates the book is how are these things truly related? How is the social, how do the social and intellectual worlds come together? How do they um, inform each other? Um, how can we think more fruitfully about the importance of both of them? And then finally, um, there was the history of magic. <laughs> So when talking about these things, one of the first questions that comes up is, well, what, how do you talk about it? What terms do you use to talk about it? Or can you only use um, the kind of transliterated Arabic uh, emic terms? And I had, uh, I had a very long journey in this. So, you know, when I first wrote the dissertation, I actually was reading all of this criticism of uh, the kind of colonial uh, origins of, you know, the distinction between religion and magic in religious studies. And I came to the conclusion that, oh, you have to completely reject this terminology mm. <laughs> entirely. Um, and then in the last, honestly, in the last five years, five to seven years, there's just been this explosion of research and interest in the history of magic and um, include like the history of magic in general, like within religious studies, but also within um, Islamic studies. And reading that and engaging with that research really changed my thinking on this. And I ended up connecting this to this new scholarship on the development of the history of, mag of magic that goes all the way back to um, ancient Greece um, and develops from there. And I'd like to think that the book makes a contribution to understanding the relationship of Islamic traditions to that larger history. Yeah, no. And I think that's what's just so fascinating about the book. And I love that the book is about the unseen and the seen, because I think they play a, like a perfect metaphor or symbolism for exactly what it is that you're doing, which is like bringing together these um, disciplines that some of them have been treated very pejoratively, right? As you're saying, like the idea yes. of magic and religious studies, um, and then also perhaps not um, attended to in Islamic studies, right? Um, you know, kind of tied to sorcery and all of this other stuff. Um, so I think the book, is like remarkable theoretically for that reason because it's just so insightful in bringing these different disciplines together and then there's the actual case study that you're working on too right which is the story of West Af West Africa um, West Saharan Sufism right which I think is so cool so so many things are going on here which I'm really excited to get into um can you talk a little bit about your archival journey like you mentioned a little bit yeah. and like, like, um, I know archival I'm, I'm an ethnographer so I have my own anxieties about going into the field but the more and more I speak to archivists like the more that I find that there's like other particular sets of challenges and like, um, um, you know, interesting moments. And so I don't know if you had um, particular challenges, like where did this book project take you, your dissertation project take you in terms of looking for archives? What were like some challenging moments, but maybe like what was like a surprising good moment <laughs> that you were like, oh, this is great. Um, so one of the largest challenges was that I had initially been planning to spend uh, six months in Timbuktu. So I, I did a preliminary trip in 2010, and I was planning to return in 2012 to do six months of, uh, of research in the manuscript libraries of Timbuktu. And then at the end of 2011, the kind of civil war mm. um, in the north um, broke out. Right. And um, it, was, um, it was impossible to go to Timbuktu. So I, um, I reoriented and I ended up spending one month in Jenne um, at the uh, uh, La Bibliothèque des Manuscrits de Jenne, the, the, the Manuscript Library of Jenne. And then I spent uh, six months in Morocco instead. Oh. 
um, primarily in Rabat, um, looking at the manuscript libraries there, and then um, one month in France at the Bibliothèque Nationale, which um, still has the contents of the former library of Segu. Oh, okay. And I discovered that the um, there were some really interesting manuscripts in Gene, and it turned out that there were a lot of Kunta manuscripts in Morocco, far more than I had expected or hoped for. Um, and so most of the most of the manuscript texts that this um, book is based on are housed in Morocco. I think one particularly uh, so uh, one challenge that faces a lot of people who do manuscript research is in getting reproductions of these texts that um, so that you can really spend a long time reading them at home because it often takes you know it often takes weeks or even months to work through um, a single one of these they're they're old they're complex um, you know even the you know the handwriting needs to be deciphered along with a lot of other a lot of other issues yeah. and kind of negotiating that process with each library I had a very positive experience at um, the manuscript library in Jenne where um, I was one of the the first uh, uh, foreign researchers to come and use the library and they had a wonderful setup where they um, where many manuscript libraries actually purchase manuscripts from individuals who had passed them down in their families. And they didn't do that. They actually stored, they housed manuscripts that continued to belong to their to the families that had owned them. And each family's collection is kept and housed separately. So I was, um, because I was one of the first um, people to come in and use the library, I worked out a system with them for obtaining reproductions where I paid a fee, which was then split between um, the library to, you know, support their efforts to house and preserve the manuscripts and between the family that owned each manuscript that I was getting a reproduction for. Mm. Um, and it felt, it felt very, um, it felt relatively open and transparent, and it felt like um, it was being used to really benefit um, the people who who these works belonged to. Right, right, yeah, that's so fascinating, and especially with kind of um, social moments or like just political realities that uh, shift um, research, right? Even when you're working with manuscripts. Um, um, so I wonder we could start getting into some of the pieces of the chap of the book. Um, so the book is really around two uh, main figures, right? And then kind of some of the things that they produced. Um, and so two Sufi Muslim scholars who lived in the West African Sahara um, and Saharan desert in the 19th century. So can we can you tell us a little bit about these two scholars um, so that we can get into some of the things that they're doing that is informing the scholarship? Absolutely. So um, El Mokhtar al-Kunti and his, uh, one of his sons who became his heir um, and the leader of his community after him, Mohammed al-Kunti, um, were West African Sufi Muslim scholars. El Mokhtar uh, lived in the late 1800s, so the um, second half of the, I'm sorry, the late 1700s, the second half of the 18th century. Um, he died in 1811. And he was he was somebody who came to prominence um, through trade. So he, uh, he slowly acquired um, control over very important um, Saharan trade routes um, and amassed a large quality of a large quantity of wealth, but he also became known for his scholarship and for his access to specific um, to the to the shrines of 
his Sufi ancestors. So he became known as a Sufi figure as well and as a Sufi friend of God. So a figure of um, particular proximity to God um, in, um, and because of his particular proximity to God, um, marvelous events would occur in his presence. He was also a teacher of students. So he, um, he developed a pedagogical network and attracted students from across the region who came to study and learn with him. And his son um, took over after his death and um, died himself in 1826 and was really the caretaker of his father's legacy. So he wrote the main hagiographic works about his father's life. And one of the things that um, differentiated these two from the Sufis in the region that came before was their involvement in um, social and political affairs. So many of the figures who... Um, so many of the Sufis, um, the West African Sufis in the region before were ascetics um, who lived in, um, in isolated communities, um, who had withdrawn from the world and um, who passed down prayers, these supplicatory prayers from generation to generation, often prayers that were attributed to, um, to founding figures, um, paradigmatic um, figures from the past, or that um, they had composed themselves and were attached to their own names. Um, much of Mokhtar Al-Kunti and Muhammad Al-Kunti's works defend what they call um, earning a living mm. and being involved in the world. And so they became known um, for, for getting involved in the, in the political machinations of other large Confederates, Confederate groups um, in the region and of supporting particular, particular leaders or contenders to leadership positions. They also came to power in a time when the transatlantic slave trade had been going on for, at that point, um, several hundred years and had gradually um, destabilized areas further and further into the interior to the point where um, political leaders who had been charged with, in theory, protecting their their subjects, the people um, under under their under their dominion, were no longer able to do so, or had in fact fallen into slave raiding themselves, and were preying on their own peoples, and this instability and constant threat of enslavement led to different political developments, and particularly a wave of Muslim-led movements that aimed to establish Muslim states. Mm. So there were a couple different models of political authority in the region, but almost all of them were based on coercive force, military power and dominance. And Sidi al-Mukhtar um, and the Kunta, they, they were involved in an experiment, an attempt to establish a basis for social authority that did not rely on military force. This was a rhetorical fiction. They absolutely did resort to military force at times. Right, right. But, but they, they based their legitimacy in theory on something else, on the voluntary submission to the Sufi friends of God, that people would recognize their authority, their proximity to God, and voluntarily um, submit to their leadership. Right. And part of their engagement in you know, what we're about to talk about, these kind of contested practices, is certainly tied to that project, mm -hmm. to saying that they had some kind of method 
for controlling the material world around them, for influencing social and political events, and for protecting the people who had voluntarily, willingly chosen to submit to their authority. Right, right. That's so fascinating. And this is kind of what you get into, I think, in chapter one about, which is kind of um, the, the visible world, right? Like kind of the social contacts, the political contacts um, of the desert reality of like what's going on at the time, right? Um, and I was really kind of fascinated in this chapter about like the role that Sufism played in kind of the organizational and intellectual tradition that they're trying to kind of construct. Um, and and so there, yeah, so I wonder if you could talk us through this a little bit, because, you know, the reality is the visible is informing the invisible work that they're doing. Um, and so much of it is it's uh, the kind of political realities, uh, the role of the saints, right? Um, but there, but yeah, let's maybe we could talk about that first in terms of some of the things you're doing in chapter one. So one of the main arguments in chapter one has to do with how we think about Sufism and the history of Sufism um, in this region. And a lot of discussions about Sufism today are dominated by um, are, are dominated by discussions of the Sufi orders, what are called the Sufi orders. Um, they, these are large, large scale, hierarchical, oftentimes transnational organizations that have one. Um, one Sufi figure, one Sufi friend of God, sometimes referred to as a Sufi saint, at the top. And then a hierarchy of um, kind of lieutenants of leaders um, beneath him, um, stretching all the way down to um, uh, to kind of local initiates and followers. And these are particularly prominent and predominate in Senegal, um, although they. Um, Although other parts of West Africa, including Mali, um, which is right next door, they are far less important. And because they are so prominent both in Senegal um, and elsewhere in the world, um, a lot of, I, I argue, a lot of scholarship has tended to see the presence of Sufi orders in the past, even when, um, even when the evidence does not support um, them being there. So the Sufi orders today, like I said, they're very large, they're often very large, they're hierarchical, um, they're very organized, but also a lot of people refer to them as having kind of a corporate um, and exclusive structure. So um, they have, they, they all have names. So for example, one large one would be the Tijaniya and another one is the Qadraiya. And if you are a member of the Qadraiya Sufi order, then in theory, you can go to like your local Sufi um, uh, you know, your local Sufi Zawiya, your local Sufi Lodge in um, wherever you are, but also if you're traveling, you can go to your local Qadraiya um, Sufi Lodge anywhere else, right? right? Um, and, and have more or less um, a similar or a very similar experience there and would be welcomed. And you're only supposed to have membership in one. <laughs> They're exclusive. If you're a member of the Qadraiya, you're not a member of the Tijaniya, right? And you would not be uh, welcomed there in the same way, at least. And in the period in which the Kunta lived, in which uh, Mokhtar al-Kunti and Muhammad al-Kunti lived, there's no evidence um, for the existence of orders like this. So I'm, or I'm arguing that we need to understand what it meant to be a Sufi as being something that changed over time. Even though many of the Arabic terms associated with that are the same terms, how people understood those terms changed. These are kind of polyvocal, polyvalent um, words. Um, that were flexible, were adaptable. 
to be a Sufi when Moksha Rakunti rose to power primarily meant to be an ascetic and to hand down um, these prayers, um, these supplicatory prayers from, from a figure um, that they felt a close spiritual connection to. And um, Al-Muqtar Kunti had a close spiritual connection to Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. Um, but that didn't mean that he saw himself as the leader of an organized Qadraiya uh, Sufi order at the time. Right, right, right. It's so fascinating. Um, I this chapter really, I mean, you know, I think about Sufism a lot. And so this chapter really was um, um, important for me in terms of processing. I really love the way that you um, um, kind of were incisive in how you were thinking about Sufism based on the context here as well, and kind of made me pause and reflect on some of um, the ways that I think about it in my own context as well. So this is fantastic. Um, so chapter two then gets into some really fun stuff and gets into the realm of the unseen. And here you're dealing with like the afterlife, cosmological realms, you know, um, unseen entities. Um, so what are, you know, these two scholars that you're engaging with, like how, what do they think of these unseen uh, seen realms? Like, why are they like even thinking about them, I guess, is a basic question I would have. So um, there's no one place in their works where they just sit down and lay out the realm of the unseen, right? But they refer to it throughout. It's almost an assumption that it's one of these kind of fundamental assumptions that undergirds their worldview. And that comes forth in a lot of different places. And the more you read, the more it's clear that they assume that there is uh, a realm of the invisible, an invisible realm, the realm of the unseen, that surrounds and interpenetrates into the visible material realm that, that we see and experience all around us. And that the entities, the invisible entities that populate the invisible realm are constantly interacting with the material and the visible um, and vice versa. The things that we do that are visible and material have effects, ripple effects out into the unseen. And that it's um, for them, it's, in, it's both crucial that we, um, that, that Muslims understand um, the unseen entities that are interacting with them all the time, but also that they align their behavior in the visible realm in, in such a way that, they're, that they are then correctly aligned within the invisible as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important for physical and material protection, but it's also important for, um, for spiritual development as well. It's, it's, um, and it is salvific right. as well. Right, right. And so it has all these important effects. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and right, so that is the subject of chapter two, is the invisible realm as it emerges from these texts in all these different ways. Right, yeah. And how, what was the role of saints in relationship to it? Because obviously there was, a, there's like an intimacy and proximity that yes. they were trying to situate that the saints had that perhaps the masses didn't. So like, yeah, what was that role, I guess? Yeah. So, um, so according to, so as they lay it out, all believing Muslims have some contact and engagement and knowledge of the invisible realm. Um, whether um, whether that comes from prayer or whether that come from things like prayer or from um, from knowledge in the Quran, the only people who were really cut off from the invisible were the unbelievers who had heard the message, 
and completely rejected it, like turned their back on it. Um, but for everyone else, everyone had some contact. And then the further along the Sufi path you went towards God, the the deeper your knowledge of and your um, kind of awareness of the invisible realm became until when you reached um, the when you reached the ranks of the Sufi saints of the friends of God, you um, you gained something called a uh, test free freedom of action, where you experienced um, the invisible to the same extent that we experience um, the visible and the material. You didn't have to learn about it. You were constantly immersed in it and you didn't have to do something um, specific. You didn't have to perform a specific action or ritual in order to influence it. You could reach out and alter the invisible realm with your will the same way that I can reach out and um, and move the objects around me with my hands. Right, right. Oh, so fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and chapter three, I think you get to, I think one of the main um, crux of the, you know, the, the work that you're doing or the interventions that you're trying to make in this book and interrogating this idea of like the label, quote, air quotes of sciences. And so here you're talking about things like crafting amulets or speaking with gins or communicating with gins, use of maybe litanies and, and you know, um, and, and the dicker and things like that. And so there's a, there's a tension that you're trying to highlight, which is like, there is amongst the Kunta scholars that the idea of some of, um, you know, is this sorcery, is this science, you know, what's going on here? And so there's kind of an internal conversation that's happening, but I think you're also placing this in the larger conversation of our field in religious studies and Islamic studies, right? Um, and I think this is such an important chapter for that reason. So can you walk us through maybe some of the, the moves that you're making in this chapter? Certainly. So one of the um, kind of methodological interventions in this chapter is to start with the internal terms, the emic terms that the Kunta themselves use to describe these practices, um, and to look at them at first at the at the first order categories and then at the second order categories. So to look first at each individual, what they would call science or discipline, um, and tease out what they are, but then also to look at how they categorize um, these uh, these these groups of uh, these disciplines, these groups of knowledge and practice relative to each other. So to work out their internal framework. And then finally, then at that stage to come in with the kind of etic terms that, um, that religious studies scholars have used um, to talk about these practices and to see to what extent they fit. So, they're, so they are interested in engaging in certain practices and they have ones that they valorize. And um, the most valorized of them, they refer to as the sciences of letters and names. And um, th these refer to the uses of the names of God and the letters of the Arabic alphabet. And also the understanding that each letter um, is associated with a number. And at one point, Sidi Muhammad says that the, uh, the numbers inhabit letters the way souls inhabit bodies, mm. right? That they are, um, they are fundamentally connected. Um, and, and, and in fact, the number is in some ways the kind of essence, that spiritual aspect of each letter um, in the invisible. So that allows for the... Um, for the function of, say, numerology. And um, they use these numbers and their letters and also some symbols to make, um, to make charts and, um, um, and, and these squares that, that can then be inscribed on, um, on 
on amulets or on physical objects that can be incorporated into other practices in various ways to have almost um, an unlimited um, series of actions that you can do. So you can use them to cure a broken heart. You can use them to protect a house from thieves. You can use them to expel an unjust ruler from a city. Um, uh, like you can, I mean, you can really do almost anything with these. And they valorize them. Um, and they need, however, when they go to categorize these um, these practices to distinguish them from two other groups of practices. So on the one hand are what are called the marvels of the friends of God, um, which are these, um, these, uh, these charismatic gifts that God creates for his special friends. Um, so causing say um, fruits to bloom out of season or water to erupt from barren rock or, um, or safety to emerge suddenly and unexpectedly in periods of danger, um, to allow to do things like allow um, a friend of God to know what's happening um, in in places that are very distant, or to be simultaneously in two places, and that happen in theory um, without doing anything specific, right? That happens suddenly and sometimes unexpectedly. So the Kunta want to distinguish um, what they call the sciences of these, uh, the sciences of the unseen or the sciences of the secrets from that category on the one hand, but also on the other hand, from the category of sorcery, of seher, which they understand as real um, and is being absolutely prohibited. And their problem is that they acknowledge, Sidi Muhammad says in one text that other Muslim scholars might look at these practices that we engage in and call them sorcery, but they are not sorcery. So he sees these as um, legitimate, permissible actions that Muslims can do. And in fact, sometimes he situates them as part of the Sufi path, as, as things that Sufis will do as part of their spiritual progression towards God, but that are not, um, are not the marvels of the friends of God at the same time. And one of the things that distinguishes them is that they are supposed to have predictable results. They are repeated things. And if you do them correctly um, every time, then regardless of the spiritual proficiency of the person doing them, they should work, which he says is just like sorcery. And the difference is that one is permitted and one is not. So he's trying to open up this space between the, um, the valorized wondrous marvels, which are unpredictable, and the impermissible prohibited um, actions of sorcerers, which however are predictable, repeatable in this way. And then finally in this chapter, I, I take um, his discussion of the sciences of the secrets um, and their distinction from sorcery. And I connect that to a very old um, discussion that emerged in the Hellenistic world about magic, um, about Magaea, and to discourses, um, what um, Bern Christian Otto has called discourses of inclusion and discourses of exclusion. So the earliest discourses of magic emerged as a, a discourse of exclusion, what Kimberly Stratton called discourse of alterity, that aimed to marginalize um, vulnerable groups, particularly women, but also foreigners, um, by marking them as other, 
as barbaric in certain ways. But even from almost the earliest time that we have evidence for that discourse, that discourse of exclusion, it also seems that certain people took that label and said, actually, you know what? You're saying that this stuff is, is awful, but you're also saying that it's powerful. I'm going to try and grab that power. I am a magic user. I can do these things. Um, and so Bern Christian Auto has called that a discourse of inclusion and said that people who practiced the discourse of inclusion, who were self-identified magic practitioners, passed down their textual and ritual traditions in a heterogeneous but continuous tradition of Western learned magic. And he admits that the relationship between um, this tradition of Western learned magic and Islam is very un understudied. But it is clear from um, the works of some other folks, including Leanna Seif, that much of this Hellenistic discussion of, of magic, both as a discourse of exclusion and also inclusion, was translated into Arabic as part of the, uh, the Greek translation movement and adopted by Arabic-speaking Muslim discourse, where you know other things were added to and it was changed and adapted over time. Um, but offers a but offers a route by which these discourses came to be important within Islamic um, intellectual traditions and Islamic social history. And the Kunta are very much participating in in these discourses, primarily through a discourse of exclusion. They they identify um, um, magic as sorcery. It is always a negative thing. It is always prohibited. It is always um, impermissible. Um, it is the domain of, of Muslims who are sinning or of non-Muslims. Um, and in contrast, they try and build up their sciences as being something different, something outside of that domain. I think this chapter is probably like one of my favorites, but also I think just like a uh, wonderful chapter that folks may want to consider using when they're doing religious studies and thinking about um, emic and edit categories, and especially around the ideas of categorizing magic, science, sorcery. This is just like so brilliant, and, and I loved every bit of it. Um, and I think chapter four then takes you know some of those arguments further, and then also showcases how this some of this is playing out in um, supplicatory prayers or uh, duas, right? Um, and especially um, uh, letters and the names of God. Um, and you're doing something really um, intertextual, I think, in this chapter and kind of pushing it a little bit further and almost circling back to some of the earlier arguments you were making in terms of um, like these devotional practices through prayers, right? Um, um, and what it means in this context. So can you say a little bit about what you're doing in this chapter? Absolutely. So I, I also love chapter four, actually. Chapter four was the one that I wrote first. Um, and, um, and one of the ones that I love the most. And it looks at this, uh, this genre of devotional text, of devotional literature, which absolutely fills manuscript libraries. Anyone who's worked in um, a manuscript library or archive knows that a large, a large percentage of any um, manuscript library materials from any Muslim, historical Muslim society will be these, these prayers, right? Which, um, 
and yet there has been so very little research done on them. And it's because they're really hard. So a lot of them in these libraries, like I said, I first encountered a lot of these and they didn't have, they don't have names attached to them. They don't have dates. So they're incredibly hard to contextualize, but even when they do have names and dates, they present obstacles because they don't have a kind of narrative explanation attached to them. You can't ask the people who wrote them historically hundreds of years ago, how they understood them or what they did with them. And you can't, um, one of my um, kind of methodological points is to try and avoid reading back um, from what people um, do with them now and how they understand them now and to avoid kind of imposing that on a past that was hundreds of years ago. Instead, I argue that we can um, we can draw out the meanings of these texts by reading them intertextually. So the first thing I do um, with these categories of devotional prayers is to situate each one within the Kunta's other larger narrative treatises on various levels. And to and when you do that, um, then each one seems to emerge as um, a kind of encoded and encapsulated summary of their longer metaphysical and cosmological discussions that is then easily memorizable um, and then can be transmitted orally um, among people who might not have access to, um, to the longer manuscripts or the time to read them or the knowledge, the training to read those longer, ma larger manuscripts. So this would allow um, their teachings to travel more widely um, and to circulate more deeply within a society than the paper, than the written works. But at the same time, when people are memorizing these and anytime they come into contact um, with a person, who's attached to the Kunta pedagogical network, then each one of those can be um, unpacked, can be unraveled, can be decoded, can be situated within a larger discussion in this way. So you can see these as moments where the Kunta tried to um, encode and summarize and transmit their very complex metaphysical and cosmological understandings to a wide, um, to a wide body of of Muslim followers. But then the second thing I do in this chapter is to situate these texts that the that Sidi al-Mukhtar um, and Sidi Muhammad composed and to situate them in the context of other devotional um, prayers and devotional types of literature that, was, that we know was circulating in the region at the time. And when you do this, it is striking how similar they are. Um, they talk about they they um, they are patterned on and uh, they are patterned on on these um, earlier but still very pop at the time very popular works um, like the Dalal al-Khairat of al-Juzuli is one of the main comparisons that I make and they talk about similar themes but at the same time they never repeat um, verbatim the prayers of these other works. Even though that kind of repetition, that kind of borrowing, was itself a genre convention. There were certain lines, certain prayers that were said to be handed down from the prophet or from these kind of paradigmatic early Sufi figures. And it was, it was very, it was common to include those in new prayer works. 
So the fact that they specifically avoided doing so says something. They also have a much greater emphasis on cosmology and metaphysics within their own works. And from this, I conclude that that the transmission, the circulation, and the recitation of these of this devotion of these kind of devotional prayer texts was already popular among Saharan Muslims at the time, and so they are they are trying to engage with, they're trying to mobilize that popularity, but attach it to their own name and their own authority, to their own lineage. So they're trying to get people to recite their prayers along with these earlier works like the Dalal al-Khairat. Um, and therefore to kind of um, join their community and become part of their larger um, pedagogical network and um, become attached to their social authority as well. Um, and doing that, it is very much related to what I'm trying to do in chapter one, because doing that illustrates that, that the social context of what people are doing and how people understand what it is to be a Muslim is not solely a matter of intellectual elites who, um, who come up with these theories and then try and impress them on, on, on the masses, right? On their followers. They are certainly trying to do that. They would like to do that, but actually um, often the popularity of certain practices pushes upwards and, um, and forces people who are elite, these elite scholars, to engage with them, to adapt them, to try and shape them. And in doing so, that shapes the larger um, intellectual products, the larger kind of metaphysical and cosmological treatises that these scholars produce as well. Um, that, the, that those two motions are happening at once. Scholars attempting to shape um, the popular social environment and then the popular social environment actually shaping um, the intellectual works of, of the scholars. And I love that you were able to get us to think about that through prayers, like through these like really yes. fascinating prayers, right? Which you've like, you provided amazing, um, some of them at length. Um, and so it was really like fun to read and then kind of contextualize in the broader context. Um, and yeah, I, I can now get why you love this chapter because I also really loved reading this chapter. It was just like such a great way to, I think also end, end the book as well. Um, I'm, I have a few questions, you know, some just out of curiosity, like, so, are these practices, like what's the context of some of the things that you're talking about in this book in the contemporary moment? Like are they, you know, what are the legacies of them, right? Yeah, I know that's not what you're doing, but I am kind of curious about it, yeah. And there is a little bit of a, there, you know, there's a, there's a short discussion of that in the conclusion as well. <laughs> these practices are still incredibly popular and widespread um, across, um, throughout Muslim communities in West Africa. And they are incredibly debated. <laughs> Right, there are intense debates um, over them throughout the region. Um, at the moment in the region, um, there is there are figures who are called in French marabouts, right, which is based on a kind of uh, French colonial uh, mispronunciation of the Arabic murabet. Um, but they are they are people who engage in these practices. They are kind of um, they're they're service providers. They're kind of textual ritual service providers that you can go to when you have a problem. And many, although not all of them, are also Sufis, right? Um, and 
in certain places, some of um, many of them will be members of the kind of contemporary Sufi orders, but not all of them are. Some of them are not. Um, but there are also many Muslims who reject these practices, who do see these practices as um, sorcery or as simply ineffective, as superstition. And many of and there are and many um, Muslims in kind of a transnational context, kind of globally, um, reject these practices as either sorcery or superstition. And so many of the transnational Sufi orders, um, while their members might engage in these practices, they they tend they they tend to say that um, they need to be kept a secret. And that they need to be closely guarded, and they and they often kind of try and downplay the the importance of these practices, especially when they're looking at a kind of more global or transnational audience. The kunta today, the kind of current kunta, are absolutely associated with these practices, and their legacy is bound up in them. Um, so there's actually a saying in the region, um, um, a popular saying. Actually, I'm going to um, that. Um, that if you want that if you want this kind of knowledge, you go and ask the kunta, <laughs> right? And um, there's a kind of a line between the popularity and engagement of these practices among kunta descendants in Mali, with their kind of um, disapproval among uh, kunta descendants who are say living in, to the north of um, in Algeria, um, which is. Um, which also shows you how kind of different social and political contexts can affect how these practices are seen within a given community, even within a given community. That's so fascinating. Um, and this is just a random question. Um, um, what is sandwriting? I, I know we kept coming up in the oh, book. Oh, Ramo? Yeah, I just, I know, sorry, this yes. is random, but I, I kept being like, I need to ask, what is this? <laughs> so... Khatel Rommel, um, as it's practiced today, sometimes called geomancy, is a form of making a series of marks in the sand that are generated, um, that are that are theoretically generated randomly, and then of interpreting, of um, of reading a particular situation or determining how what the outcome of something will be um, based on those marks. Okay. Yeah, that's so cool. I think because most of the others I've kind of heard about. Or yes, like, yes you're right. I, I I didn't like. So one of the challenges. So that is that is what it is today and how it is practiced today. One of my methodologies in this book is that I have is to not assume what any specific term might have meant based on contemporary practices or practices from other regions. So unless I can tell, unless the, unless, um, the Kunta themselves explain what something means within one of their texts, I try to avoid assigning it a specific meaning. And that's very hard at some, in some points, especially when they simply assume that their audience knows what they're talking about. And I would say Khatel Rommel is one of those, where I'm fairly certain it refers to the pra this practice of, um, of making these marks in the sand and then using them as a kind of um, uh, divinatory tool. But they do not actually, they do not ever explain it explicitly in the text that I read. 
Right, right, right. So that's that's one reason why I'm a little more hesitant to get involved in that, where they they actually talk about and explain um, the magic squares and the terminology around the magic squares much more extensively. Right, right. And and for that reason, I mean, the what you've done is that it's so accessible that if folks don't know some of these practices, especially the chapter on magic squares, to see the actual squares and to like the captions that were included, it, it's like quite accessible. And so I think for me, I was like, ooh, what is this thing? And what is that thing, right? Because it's kind of really fun. Uh, but I, you're dealing with texts that are hyper-specialized. And as you're saying, just making the assumption that folks know. But as a reader, reading your analysis of it, I found that I was able to access the context that you're talking about quite well. And so that's um, really a testament to you as, as a scholar to be able to make that accessibility possible. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I really, you know, that actually means a lot to me that you say that because I try and write in a way that is accessible. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always doing it. I'm always trying to work on it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you're dealing with something like this, it's really hard, right? Because in order to, in order to make it, meaningful, you have to know so much about the specific terminology, the specific historic context, but also about Sufism and about the history of Sufism, and then about the history of these specialized practices, about magic discourse um, in Islamic traditions. And there were definitely moments when I felt like I I gave up. And I said, like, I said, you know what? this passage might not be accessible for non-specialists <laughs> or like this chapter, maybe I can't do it. <laughs> right. So actually to, to have somebody say, no, actually it felt very accessible. That means a lot to me because oh, and I, a lot of effort went into that. Yeah, no. And I could tell like, cause I, I know that to be able to do that required work on your end. Right. Cause it's not something that you just happens naturally. It has to be intentional about it. Um, and I say that partly because, um, cause yeah, I was nervous reading the book cause I I'm, you know, entering a field that I don't really know, but then I came out being like, Oh, oh right. Like I felt like I got a lot and I'm sure those folks who have specialized training will probably get another other layer that perhaps I wasn't able to get and that's fine but I still felt like I walked away with so much right so yeah although you 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 do know a lot about Sufism and Islam so I wonder I'm like but could somebody could somebody who studies like um like contemporary Buddhist movements in Hawaii right Right. would they would they find this accessible right? right um or even yes so that'll be the real test yeah I really hope so I I I really tried yeah And I think they will partly because, as you said, the chapter on kind of chapter three discussing the theoretical interventions you're making, that's just, you know, that's for so many scholars doing all of this work, either in the context of, um, you know, like maybe even like occult sciences in the North American context or the European context, right? This is getting into this whole other metaphysical reality, which I think, um, you know, people should read. And I think for someone who thinks about a lot of this stuff and, um, in Islam and Sufism, I, I often get sad that that's not a thread. Like, you know, the work that you're doing, the work that Liana Saif are doing, I think those are things that need to be highlighted, but often in Islamic studies is not, you know, um, amplified as much, right? Yeah. I also just want to take another moment to issue a shout out to Liana Saif for all of her like incredible, absolutely incredible like work that she has done um, on the, the intellectual history of these practices. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on that as well. Yeah, because I adore her work and I love the, the work that she's doing and we're, we're also indebted to her, right? Like, this yeah, is- absolutely. No, I honestly, I, I could not have written this book um, 
had she not done the work that she did. Like she is, um, she is just so many of her work. She has so many of them. So they couldn't cite them all, but so many of them are just cited throughout and um, just served as a critical foundation that um, almost all of this is built on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Leanna, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> yeah. We love you, Leanna. Absolutely. We do. Yeah. Um, what we were just talking about though, the, you know, how I hope this book will be relevant to, to scholars outside of the study of Islam or the study of Sufism or the study of West Africa is also one of the arguments is because of one of the arguments I make at the end of chapter three, where, um, I compare, you know, I connect this history to um, what Otto called these magical discourses of exclusion and magical discourses of inclusion. But then I connect that theoretical framework to another, um, which was developed by um, scholars like Peter Pells, but also um, Edward Bever and Randall Stiers, who referred to something called the double gesture. <laughs> where a, a discourse of exclude of they don't use that word a discourse of exclusion but I'm, I'm connecting the two where the process of rejecting um, forms of knowledge and the practices that are built on them actually reinforces and reinscribes um, the authority and and the power of that authority and knowledge and then makes it available for others right, such that the two become inextricably bound together. And in fact, often um, the, the people or the society that is doing the act of exclusion, they are the ones whose legacy becomes kind of almost continuously followed, almost haunted by the knowledge and practices of, of the people that, um, that they've been trying to reject this whole time. And one thing I do at the end of chapter three is that I argue, um, so, so Pels and Bever and Stiers, they argue that this is um, a, a feature of, of the modern West, right? And I use the story of the Kunta in West Africa to say that that is absolutely not the case, that they are involved in the same thing, involved in this process of exclusion that ironically, um, um, reinforces these um, the potential power of these forms of knowledge and practice and then binds them all the more to their own legacy. And that in looking at that, we can see that this is not, this is not a kind of discourse, this isn't a process that is um, confined to the modern West. This is actually a process that holds for all human societies who try to um, define or limit the sphere of legitimate knowledge and the, the effect, the effective and efficacious practices that are built on legitimate knowledge. That all of us, when we try to exclude or marginalize the knowledge and practices of people that we consider others, bind ourselves all the more closely to them. 
Yeah. And I think it's precisely for that reason that I think this is such a great text for like theoretical, like to training students in terms of theory and thinking about religious studies and Islamic studies. I think you like you've hit it right there. Right. Um, and we don't do that. And so when we when you when you are giving us this kind of all of these conceptual things to think about, um, I think it's just so valuable um, because all of these categories we've constructed are really just kind of binding us in different ways. And we need to like, um, um, yeah, be really reflexive about it. So I think it's it's amazing. It's fantastic. And I can't congratulate you enough on a fantastic book. And I can recommend it enough for our listeners to go and pick it up and read it and uh, swim in it and have fun with it. It's just, it's really, really great. So um, I hope you are taking time to breathe and celebrate the book. Um, but I know we're all academics and um, I know it's the summer. So hopefully, well, the summer is coming. Um, but I have, I have the summer and also I'm on sabbatical next year. Oh, congratulations. Fantastic. I got tenure. This congratulations. Thank you. Oh, and, wow. um, and I'm taking a post-tenure sabbatical. Oh, congratulations. Which I hope to use both, like you said, to rest and to breathe, but also to, uh, to start the next project. So tell us about, I mean, I'm celebrating your resting and breathing. I think we yes. need to celebrate that for each other more. Absolutely. And yes. your tenure. That's amazing, yeah. amazing news. Um, so after the resting and the celebrations are happening, what are what's like some of the what's the next project that you're thinking about? So I got I just received a Kaoric multi-country research fellowship. Oh wow. To go to um, Morocco and Mauritania and Senegal to research the I'm, so the next project is about the narratives um, that developed in the early 18th century, so the early 1700s, about uh, the War of Nasser ad-Din, which is referred to um, in the region as Shur Buba, Buba's War, mm-hmm. uh, which happened in the in the 1670s. Mm-hmm. And this was a um, a Berberophone-led messianic movement around the figure of Nasser ad-Din and the outcome of, and according to the narratives of it that developed, the outcome of this conflict, his defeat formed the kind of social charter for for social relations and hierarchies and political divisions in the region um, all the way up to the contemporary period. And even though this conflict is referenced um, in almost any work on the history of the region, there's actually no study just of um, the conflict itself. And I strongly suspect, I'm going to look, but I strongly suspect that documents that are actually contemporary with Nasser Dean's movement either don't exist or are gonna be very, very hard to find. And what I'm interested in are the narratives about the movement that were written by a scholar named Elia Daly in the early 1700s that became foundational and helped establish the link between Sufism and revolutionary ideology that then served as the kind of revolutionary foundation for all of um, the Muslim-led military movements, the jihads of um, of the 18th and early 19th centuries. Whoa, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Okay. Yeah, it also sounds like maybe perhaps way more ambitious than the project will actually end up being. Yeah. I'm really, I'm 
I'm really excited about it. It's it's a it's a different project, so I'm not I, for the moment. I'm not intending to do more work on the Kunta right now. I've been you know working on that project for ten years. I'm, I'm ready to do something else. Um, it goes earlier. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of go deeper into the pre-colonial period, mm -hmm. yeah. and um, and yeah, I'm really excited to look at Sufism and Messianism and revolution. <laughs> That sounds so exciting. I'm, I'm excited for you and I'm excited for us to be able to be the recipients of whatever wonderful scholarship that emerges out of it. Um, again, congratulations on everything on tenure, the book, the sabbatical, the funding, um, and all the best for everything that's ahead of you. Um, so thank you so much for hanging out with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Shobana. It was really a pleasure. And that was my conversation with Dr. Ariella Marcus-Sells about sorcery or science, contesting knowledge and practice in West African Sufi text. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take care.